0: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thrilled that you could join us as always. We have a great show for you today. You know, on Go Green Radio, we've talked a lot about renewable energy, but today we're going to take a different tack. We have got um, Craig Shields with us today, and he's just recently come out with a new book called Renewable Energy follow the money. In times past, when we've talked about renewable energy on Go Green Radio, we've talked about the technology, we've talked about the upsides, the downsides. Today, we're going to talk about it from a little bit of a different tack, and I'm excited to have Craig on. He's the editor of two, that's the number two, Green Energy, and author of an ongoing series of books. Um, one of them is called Renewable Energy Facts and Fantasies, uh, Is Renewable Energy Really Doable, uh, or Is Renewable Renewable, Really Doable. Both of those are on Amazon. You can check those out, as well as his brand new book, as I mentioned, Renewable Energy, Follow the Money. Well, welcome to Go Green Radio, Craig. We are so glad to have you on today.
2: Well, Jill, it's terrific to be here with you
0: congratulations on your new book. What I'd love for you to do is kind of set us up here a little bit. Tell our listeners um, what you mean by renewable energy, follow the money. What's the premise of the book? And then tell us some of the people that you interviewed for the book. They're very uh, interesting and eclectic group of people.
2: Well, thank you. I agree. Uh, the premise, I suppose, is – I guess the premise of the entire series is trying to pull apart a, an important question, and that is if – it's true that all of this stuff, this, this migration away from fossil fuels and nuclear, uh, in a direction of efficiency, of conservation, and of renewable energy, if it's true that all of this stuff is important, and I think that it is, why are we doing such a terrible job in, in pursuing it? Um, mm-hmm. There's got to be a reason, and we're there, or, or better put. There are, as you alluded to in your introduction, there are many reasons, and some of them are technological. In other words, the efficiency of this stuff is getting better. The costs are coming down, but currently not all flavors of renewable energy are equally affordable. Um, there are economic issues and there are political issues, and they all kind of blend together uh, in a very interesting and kind of complicated way. And so my premise, I suppose, is kind of pulling this apart for, for readers and for myself. I, I learn... I certainly learn at least as much as the readers do when I do one of these – uh I, I go on, on tours and I conduct interviews with subject matter experts. I don't claim to be an expert in any of this stuff, but I know enough about it to ask good questions of extremely well-educated people in the subject. Um, and that's – so the, the, I guess the premise to answer your question in a – sorry, kind of long-winded way is simply no, to say – that, you know, why are we doing such a terrible job in something that's so important? And the answer turns out to be following the money, thus the name of the last book.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And who are some of the subject matter experts that you featured in the book? You have some really, like I said, eclectic uh, interviews. They're really not all the same uh, type of thinkers, shall we say.
2: (laughs) No, um, and that's uh, by design. Um, So in each of these books, the... The um, kind of the underlying way I go about this is to figure out what in fact, what is the most eclectic, what are le- readers going to learn the most from, what types of people? so I obviously have scientists, but I also have philosophers and economists here i 've got a representative of the um, military, a retired um, vice admiral of the u s navy um, i 've got a a, uh, a nuclear physicist i 've got the um, director of the um, Electric Drive Transportation Association, and I think the most for me, the most interesting one, was a uh, representative, the spokesperson for the Cato Institute, who's an extremely, as you can imagine. I mean, this this is this is a libertarian think tank whose job it is to convince the world that government is evil and needs to go away. And so my premise is well if you really believe that unregulated capitalism is going to get the job done here, can you convince me of that in an hour and a half? Um, and, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that the guy didn't convince me of that, but he, it's not that he didn't try. That was an extremely interesting way of spending 90 minutes, I can assure you.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I read that interview. Well, I read them all. But that one, that one was really interesting. And sometimes I think it's interesting just to find out how your fellow Americans view um, these issues, even if you don't necessarily end up agreeing with them. Yeah. Um, and that was that was really enlightening. You know, in the first few pages of the book you had a line that I'd really like for you to explain to our listeners because um, as a former naval officer myself, what you said really rings true to me and I and I really appreciated it, but I'd like for you to um, explain it from your point of view. You said, um, if you really love this country, the continued dependence on fossil fuels has only downside, especially militarily. Why don't you spend a few, couple minutes talking to our listeners about why you feel that way?
2: Well, again, I'm not an expert in this, and in fact, you, because of your background, are probably going to know more about this than I do. But I would say, first of all, I would say that I, I do understand that protecting the supply lines of oil is the single most lethal job that one in the military can have. So mm-hmm. in other words, we lose more lives um, performing the duty of protecting oil, Um, supplies in the field, in now obviously in Afghanistan, um, than in any other single line of work. So I think the military has rightfully decided that this isn't a, you know, we do need a solution on this thing, and it's probably electric transportation, it's probably, you know, EVs charged with renewable sources, wind, solar, probably solar in the field. Um, So I support Um, As a loyal American, I support our military's right to pursue, um, you know, tax, as you put it, that are going to protect American lives. Um, And ironically, I mean, that may sound like a platitude, because wouldn't anybody say that? Well, ironically, the answer is no. In other words, there are people, um, you know, we have a a famous um, senator from um, Oklahoma, Jim Inhofe, who's famously saying that he was making it impossible for the military to even experiment with biofuels if they cost a penny more a gallon than gasoline and diesel. So he's successfully put a block on the military's experimentation with something that it considers strategic for the next, you know, in decades. Mm-hmm. Which I find amazing that, that somebody can do this. Um, well,
0: and thankfully, he wasn't around when the Navy was experimenting with nuclear-powered submarines because that's of course, kind of a strategic uh, advantage that we've had for many, many years in the military, and that wasn't cheaper than wood or coal-fired plants <laughs> right. that were currently at that you know at that time um, firing up Navy ships.
2: Exactly right, Jill. And as a matter of fact, that's the point that the that the vice. Uh, Admiral retired um, Dennis McGinn made with me. He goes, "This is we, the, the the idea that we want something cutting edge, and that we're experimenting with something that's new and more expensive currently, but strategic to our interests in the long term is nothing new. We've been doing this for hundreds of years." Right. So, and my, and my response is, "Well, yes, I understand that you you have a responsibility to protect us next week, but also 30 years from now, and that your decisions." may uh, take us in directions that we find a little strange or a little different currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also said, well, aren't you furious with somebody who, who, who who's a senator? He's one of the 100 most important um, decision-makers and leaders in our world who's making it impossible for you to j- do your job. I would call this treason. And the guy goes, calm down, Craig. <laughs> um, I, the thing I admire most, admire most about Dennis McGinn is the fact that he's extremely level-headed. You can, you can come at him with both barrels. Uh, he can defend himself and does defend himself, but he never, ever loses his temper. I really think the guy's fantastic.
0: Well, you would hope that if you were a vice-admiral, which is – for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Navy's um, hierarchy, that's just about as high as you can possibly get. You would hope that they would have a, a quote-unquote, even keel, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, it's the
2: equivalent of a three-star general in the Army.
0: Exactly. They
2: don't Um, grow on trees.
0: (laughs) You know – Part of what I do besides Go Green Radio is I run a nonprofit organization called the Go Green Initiative. I started it in 2002, and it's an environmental education program for uh, students from preschool through university. And we've got schools that are registered um, in all 50 US states and in 73 countries around the world. And just in the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot on energy education. And when you explain renewable energy and the difference between renewable energy, and non-renewable energy to kids, they ask the most perfect question, well, why are we still so dependent upon non-renewable energy when we have all this renewable energy technology? And that's a tough thing to explain. Um, in a way that you know isn't completely jaded, but part of it is, um, you know, that that our non-renewable energy infrastructure is ubiquitous and it's subsidized. For the benefit of our listeners who may not know to the the extent to which our uh, our oil and gas and coal industries are subsidized, talk to us about how uh, how the, the government subsidizes you know subsidizes these industries um, to make them even more economically viable than they would be otherwise
2: well it, it, it it's a long answer and i'll abbreviate it as follows there there are 14 different ways some of them are direct some of them are you know rating uh, the oil industry a check uh, most of them aren't like that most of them are tax breaks they're preferential deals on land leases um etc they're, they're, they're preferable um, ways of capital formation so for instance um There's a thing called MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, which is the primary ways in which capital is um, formed for oil and gas exploration, which are illegal currently for solar and wind. So there are various ways in which this becomes an unlevel playing field. Um, And most of us feel that this is regrettable. So, for instance, I guess the kids to whom you're referring in their youthful naivete would say, well (laughs) – you know, if, if, if solar is clean and oil is dirty, if we're going to be subsidizing one of them, shouldn't it be solar? Mm-hmm. I, I love, I love the simplicity of that argument. And the answer <laughs> is, of course it should. But here you have, here you have a 90 year old industry that is the most powerful group in the known universe. This is mm-hmm. the most profitable institution, industry in the history of humankind. So the fact that they became obscenely wealthy in the 20th century translates to the fact that they want to stay obscenely wealthy in the 21st century. And that means a whole bunch of what is essentially, in my mind, corruption. So in other words, it's, it's the fact that they, they raise money for your congressman, the, the guy to whom I referred a couple minutes ago, Inhofe. Eighty percent of his campaign contributions come from the oil industry. And his job is to, uh, I mean, what he spends his time doing is making it impossible for biofuels or anything else to interrupt that flow of profit to the people who put him in office. So, you know, you don't have to call that corruption if you if you want to find a nicer word for it. I don't care um, that I, I willingly and happily call it corruption.
0: Well, and I think, you know, part of what a lot of folks don't realize is, you know, they, they, a lot of people have heard that the Europeans pay a lot more at the pump for gasoline products for their vehicles than we do, but they don't understand why. Um, and it's not just because for some magic reason it costs less, um, for gasoline here than it does there. I mean, there are subsidies at the pump, even though we do pay taxes. You know, for roads and bridges and things like that, on our our gasoline purchases, um, th- there is some subsidy built into that as well. Is that not true?
2: Yes, that is true. So it's, it's essentially a transfer of wealth. Most of the most of the fact that we pay less per gallon than the uh, Europeans isn't exactly these this set of fourteen different subsidies, but it is. It's certainly it's to some degree rooted in that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, go ahead. Well,
0: we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we'll keep following the money uh, with Craig Shields. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, book 18.
0: Rachel Carson, in the
1: sea around us, said,
0: All at last, return to the sea
1: Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26 percent, 43 percent, or 14 percent? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier... Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll free at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Write to us too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck.
0: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. We have today Craig Shields. If you're just tuned He is the editor of Two Green Energy. That's the number two, Green Energy. You can check out their website if you Google that. Um, He's got a brand new book coming out called Renewable Energy, Follow the Money. And right before the break, we were talking about one senator in particular who, uh, according to Craig, has 80% of his campaign finance coming from uh, non-renewable energy companies vis-a-vis – big oil and what have you. So, you know, is that the only thing, Craig, that's keeping these subsidies for old energy or non-renewable energy in place? Uh, is it just that these en- energy companies are so wealthy, they can buy the requisite votes that they need in order to keep these subsidies in place? Or is there some other reason why we see um, such aggressive subsidization for non-renewable energy versus um, renewable energy in the U.S.?
2: Well, I, I, I'm I not an expert in the kind of political e- economics of this thing, but I would say, from where I sit and from the interviews I've conducted, I would say that it essentially is that simple. I remember, you know, I attend the uh, Renewable Energy Finance Forum twice a year, and this is a magnificent thing. It's set up by the American Council on Renewable Energy, and it really gets at you know, you have, yes, you have a couple venture capitalists who have a few million dollars in their pockets, but you also have, you know, Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank and Citigroup and people who are collectively investing, um, seven trillion dollars in this subject over the next, uh, you know, decade. Um, it's a lot of money. It really is happening. So the, the issue is, yes, the subsidization, um, comes, through what is like what I referred to earlier as corruption, um, but it's not going to be around forever. In other words, the, this, and it is part of our tax code. It's not. It's something that Congress needs to vote out. It's not something that's going to go away. So, for instance, one of the things that irks me about this thing is that the yes, there are subsidies for wind and solar, but as famously, the the production tax credit for wind um, got canceled at the end of 2000. Um, I guess. Twelve, but reinstated um, later.
0: Mm-hmm. Now
2: that caused an unbelievable disruption. So the wind turbine companies laid off most of their people simply because, you know, there were people bickering in Congress about the validity of wind energy. There's nobody bickering in Congress about the validity of sending tens of billions of dollars to the oil companies. In fact, that's part of our tax code. It would take a cons- it will take literally an act of Congress to get rid of it. But I would say. Well, shouldn't it go? In other words, this we are sending—we're um, we, enacting a transfer of wealth from the taxpayer to the wealthiest people on the planet um, that have made their money and established their business 90 years ago. There's no requirement for taxpayers to be further enriching the oil companies. Can't we make this go away? The answer, famously, um, is the. There was a, Ed Rendell, the ex-governor of Pennsylvania, said at the end of this, the last um, Congress of this Renewable Energy uh, Finance Forum, he goes, look, if you think this is going to happen in Washington, you're an idiot. <laughs> and the reason is that these, the, the fundraisers for your senators and your representatives happen seven nights a week. It never stops. It never stops, he repeated Mm-hmm. So he goes, fortunately, this is happening in Main Street, USA, and it's also happening, ironically, in corporate America. Some of the, the largest, the, most of the Fortune 500 have fantastic sustainability initiatives that are really, some of it's greenwashing, but a lot of it isn't. Some of these, mm-hmm. the, what are the, these people are doing is magnificent. So it is happening, it will happen, but do not be stupid enough to think this is going to happen in Washington.
0: Well, let me ask you this, because on the flip side of that coin, I mean, um, you see every time I watch, it doesn't matter which channel, cable news of any flavor, I'm seeing advertisements from big oil and gas uh, companies. As a former marketing professional yourself, um, what does it tell you when it isn't enough for these companies to contribute to legislators, you know? Campaign finance. When they feel the need to go and advertise to everyday Americans, what does that indicate to you?
2: Well, I guess I mean being just a person of reasonable command of logic, um, it suggests that they do, in fact, feel threatened. They know that that common Americans are figuring this stuff out. That that we recognize the the fact of climate change. We recognize the fact of ocean acidification, uh, of challenge to national security, uh, to lung disease, and so forth. And so you see advertisement to the effect that these, that our energy companies are, have our back, um, that, they, that this is good, clean, abundant fuel now and forever. So in other words, they are trying to tell us something that's patently untrue, but that that we they think we need to believe in order to keep them around. So and and that's and I think they're, you know, barking up the right tree. That's what that's what you would expect of people in that position.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, for me, just, you know, I'm a mom of three. And, you know, it irks me that when everybody in a position of leadership knows with certainty that oil and gas and coal are finite, I mean, The planet is just not making more. And we have the technology to move to infinite sources of energy. It it bothers me deeply that we aren't making that transition more quickly to alleviate the suffering that future generations might incur if they ever reach the point where their energy supply is diminished because we're still relying on finite resources that are that are running out at some point and yes. and and that we should be aggressively pursuing you know infinite energy sources is to me the biggest no-brainer that that has ever been I don't have hope that this kind of transition is going to happen at the federal level. I've, I've really begun to feel like not a lot is going to happen at the federal level on this issue. least not in the immediate future. Do you see a role for state and local governments to fill the policy void that's so apparent out of the federal government?
2: Oh, absolutely. There 37 of the 50 states have pr- fairly aggressive renewable portfolio standards, RPSs, and um, you know, California is 30%. So we're we're um, we're heading in the right direction with respect to legislation um, that is going to bring in renewable energy. Fortunately, it's happening at a time that uh, we're becoming more efficient in the way we use energy at all levels. So in other words, we have cars that get you know 50 miles a gallon, which didn't exist a few years ago. Um, so the issue of efficiency, the issue of conservation, and the migration into renewables I think is definitely happening now whether it's happening you bring up an interesting thing about the um, the fact that fossil fuels are finite and and solar energy as an example is infinite in other words the Sun's going to be burning in our sky long after we're gone Um, so the I'm not sure that the fact that it's finite versus infinite is the driver on this. For instance, coal. Yeah, we are running out of cheap, easy to find oil, but unfortunately, we're not running out of cheap, easy to find coal. You when you walk through Wyoming, you have to be. You don't even have to dig for it. You have to be careful you don't trip over it. Um, so, and coal obviously is the is the dirtiest of them all. So. Um, I'm not convinced that the issue is the fact that this is finite, but rather the fact that this is destroying our planet. And that it's a, as you pointed out, it's only a matter of a few decades um, until the effects of, of climate change and all of this stuff, ocean acidification, etc., cetera, um, become completely unbearable. And we're, we're, we're perpetrating unbelievable levels of suffering on future generations. So that, that I do. I mean, you and I are certainly on the same page in terms of that.
0: Well, and I think with coal, one of the things that's so interesting is that some of the, the most high-density and uh, fuel-rich coal – Is gone. And what we're seeing is though we can blow the tops off of mountains in Appalachia and get to coal still fairly easily with fewer and fewer workers and more and more technology and dynamite, um, the quality of that coal is not the same as it used to be when we were, you know, first mining for coal and using this on a large industrial um, level. And so when you have uh, less energy coming out of the same volume, you have to go get more and more coal. And so, even though there's still a couple hundred years of coal, that's still even if it were as high quality and as energy dense as the coal we you know we used to uh, burn uh, 50, 60 years ago, um, the fact remains that it's getting deeper uh, in terms of you know some of the, the um, environmental impacts and, and more difficult in, in that way. But I think um, you know we're we're also Facing a shortage of the best of coal, so even with sure. two hundred years of of whatever you know quality of coal we've got, that's still down to the number of generations you can count on less than two, you know, hands in terms of you know how much is left, and that I think still creates a, an issue for those of us who have DNA in the game. <laughs> you know, yes. we've yeah, well we've procreated. <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: Yes. Well, well, well said. Um I you know the, the the question of what will take us out in terms of um, fossil fuels w- will it be the exhaustion of the fossil fuels themselves or will it be the effects of burning them, I guess is kind of a debatable point. I rather think it's the latter. I think that the I don't think we'll be burning coal in fifty years even if we come up with an unbelievable we just continue to get better at mining it. Um, i don 't think we 'll be driving hummers and doing a whole bunch of insane garbage that we 're doing now um, The question because by that time, the cost of renewables and the efficiency of renewables is going to be overwhelming so nobody I mean even the coal industry is going to have to go away when the when we really achieve um, what I think we will eventually, and that is the ubiquity of renewable resources and the I you don't know handling for the fact that some, that wind and solar are variable, where you know biomass and uh um, hydro uh and geothermal are baseload, the the prominent two flavors of renewable, i.e. solar and wind, are variable. So how do you deal with that in terms of energy storage, in terms of smart grid, um etc. I believe that we're in the process of, of getting there fairly quickly, by which I mean a few decades. So by the year 2050, I'm not going to probably be on this planet in the year 2050, but um, I don't. I can't imagine that we're still going to be burning coal at that point. The question is, how much damage will we have done in the process? Mm-hmm. So in other words, the fact that this stuff isn't sustainable, by which I mean literally, it cannot be continued. I mean, we, we talk about sustainability, and it normally has these connotations of being green and cool and um, selfless and for, far-sighted <laughs> in terms of future generations. Literally, it means it can be continued, and, and there, right. there's no way in the world our current approach to energy can be continued. The question is, who's going to make a buck in the process? That's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And more importantly, how much damage will we have done by the time we get there? And the answer is Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to President Obama's eulogy of Nelson Mandela the other day, and he said, "You are the person who reminded us that right the, ten seconds before it happens, it looks impossible. It's always <laughs> impossible until it happens." Right. I think mean, he said it better than I. Um, but my point is, I think we're actually right, fairly close to right, right around the corner from getting there. But the question is, this is the juncture in humankind's history where we where we really do have the potential to destroy ourselves you know the consequences of a stupid selfish energy policy when john d rockefeller was around was that a few wildcatters got put out of the oil business because he jerked the prices around and you know manipulated the industry and went home with all the all the goodies and that was tragic but the consequences of folly and stupidity and corruption now is mass extinction. Well, and I think
0: uh, mass transparency on the part of the public, I think social media has helped um, take the message and and spread um, some of the suffering and the stories of suffering of those who are dealing with the production issues of oil and gas and tar sands and things like that has made it even more, um, uh, you know, has made it even more critical that we uh, that we make a transition people You're won't right. stand for it and i think we're going to take a quick commercial break but i think when we come back i want to talk a little bit more about that so folks don't go away there's much more go green radio right after this
1: News. 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 Over-end. Over-end. Over-end.
0: Tuning in. Our guest today is Craig Shields. He's the author of a new book called Renewable Energy: Follow the Money. And Craig, I want to back up for a second because, in in total fairness, you know, in as much as some of the non-renewable energy companies are able to uh, lobby our legislators at the state and federal level and, uh, you know, secure some goodies for their industry. There are special interest groups that represent various technologies within the renewable energy space as well. And that is why you may find more government incentives at the state or local level for solar versus geothermal or wind versus energy from waste. Um, And so, you know, there, there are some some groups that are lobbying for their own interests as well, and that's just the way things work. But one of your interviewees used a phrase that I thought was really interesting. He said, you know, when it comes to energy policy and energy technologies that will take us into the 21st century, there is no silver bullet. So we need to fire silver buckshot. Mm-hmm. Do you foresee a time when when we look at government incentives for, you know, smart energy policy, there will be a menu of incentives for all types of renewable energy versus programs that favor just a few?
2: Gosh, it's an interesting question. In the course of these, of writing these three books – I've gone back and forth on that personally half a dozen times. It strikes me that if you just kind of project, you just kind of use cold logic and try to look at the world 100 years hence, does it really make sense that you're going to have dozens of different types of renewable energy, that you're going to be still worrying about biofuels because you need liquid, you know, transportable energy in your gas tank, um, that you need hydro and wind and solar and they're different flavors of all of this, obviously. There's solar, thermal, concentrated Mm -hmm. solar power, um, there's photovoltaics, etc. So, um, I think ultimately, the answer I'm one of few who believes that this is going to get consolidated down to one or two of these things eventually. Um, I read, you know, the uh, famous television physicist Michio Kaku, who's on Whenever somebody wants to do something about science, they have this guy on because he's very smart and very personable and very accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, um, in one of his books that I read, he talks about the, um, the, a class one, two, and three civilization and how a class one civilization gets its energy from its local star. Um, and, and the class two is more advanced, etc. So I think, <clears throat> I I think we're going to get there. In other words, if we still have a civilization here in 100 years, it will be because we figured out a way to harvest the energy from the sun. So we Mm -hmm. receive every day 6,000 times more energy from the sun than all 7 billion, soon to become 10 billion, um, of us are consuming. So that's a huge – I mean that fraction, one over 6,000, is – infinitesimally small. All we need is a solution that captures as useful energy that fraction, 1 over 6,000 of the energy, and we can all go home. We can all pretend we never heard of coal and oil and all these <laughs> hearts. Um, so I have a feeling, I, I I feel extremely confident that if we f- still have a civilization here in 100 years, and there's a lot of if associated with that in my mind, um, but if that's the case, we will have solved this problem. And I don't Mm -hmm. think it's going to be with dozens of different ways. There's no reason to have, you know, a dozen different solutions to a problem. We just need one good one.
0: You know, I found it interesting and, and quite frankly a little bit disheartening that in your interview with physicist Dr. Jim Boyden, he said that he doubted that renewable energy will ever deliver more than ten to twenty percent of our energy. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to hear your take on that, Craig. If he's right, um, that's uh, that's pretty disheartening at a minimum.
2: <laughs> well, I just think he's wrong. Um, I, I didn't, you know, get. I didn't jump in his case when he said that. But you know, he's he believes in nuclear. Um, mm-hmm. He believes in you know the next generation nuclear. Um, and ultimately, I guess in thorium, though I think I asked him about that, and he said he didn 't know too much about it. Um, right. If there is a future for nuclear, it seems to me that it 's thorium as opposed to uranium. Um, but anyway, he 's a big believer in nuclear, and theref- and probably because he does not see an a, 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 uh, infinitely expandable role of, of renewable. Um, I just think he's wrong, so but he's you know again, i didn 't you know, jump in his case. Well, So, for instance, yeah. you know, wind, we're at a point where wind is at grid parity. It costs the same amount to make a kilowatt hour of electricity with wind as it does with coal. So the problem, obviously, is that wind, we don't have equal distribution of wind around the country and certainly around the world, um, and the wind is a variable resource, and we don't have inexpensive energy storage, nor do we have inexpensive energy transmission. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do with all this? Um, you know energy that you generate at three o'clock in the morning in West Texas um, so that's a por- an important problem as we sit here now in 2013 but you know is it going to be an important problem in 30 years I actually don't think so, so well because
0: it's one of those things that's so totally obvious and you know it's fair to say that in as much as you know we've got all of this renewable energy generation technology you um, you know, we need to and we are working on these issues of storage and, you know, the kind of transmission lines that can handle the fluctuating and variable um, flow of energy that comes from solar and wind. And and I am only hoping that there's as much R&D going into those issues as there is going into the technologies themselves. But, you know, I know that there are a lot of people out there who say, um, and in fact, one of your guests or one of your interview said something along these lines, that if renewable energy is you know, such a great idea, then let the market bring it online. We don't need public dollars to do this. Let the, you know, it's the free market as if the market is some you know, omniscient being, but let the VCs, let the angel investors of the world take the risk. What, what flaw do you find in that thinking? Because that is a pretty um, ubiquitous line that you hear from some folks in, in the U.S.?
2: Yes. Well, I, there are a couple of things, and one of them we've already discussed. In other words, if you if you really want, first of all, if you want to do anything of any reasonable fairness, create a level playing field. In other words, let solar and wind use master limited partnerships, knock off the subsidies to the most uh, 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 profitable industry in the history of the known universe. Um, so create a level playing field. That's number one. Number two is you know that argumentation came from the guy from the cato institute and it's not certainly not the first time i've heard that uh... but i believe that there is a role for the government to get involved in social good so in other words to try to to try to head off mass disasters uh... to protect the citizenry um, and that seems to me to be a, a, in support of clean energy the other thing I mean, there's so many points of that guy's argument that I find distasteful, and I think even it's hard for me to believe that an intelligent person can really seriously maintain this. That, for instance, I, you know, when I say, for instance, we need to internalize what are called externalities. So, in other words, their costs associated with burning coal. So mm-hmm. there are 13,200 people who are dead this year who were alive last year simply because of the process of breathing the aromatics from coal plants just to take one. but there, I mean, we're spending, seven, according to the Harvard Medical School, um, we're spending $700 billion a year in the health care costs associated with fossil fuels. Well, and just
0: take that right down to the microscopic level, Craig. I mean, when you look at some of the Appalachian communities around mountaintop coal removal, the children born there are 42% more likely to be born with birth defects than the average American child. Right. Boom. Just right there you have those externalities. That's that's an example anybody can embrace and understand.
2: Exactly. You don't really have to be a statistician or a great humanitarian to understand that there's something fundamentally wrong about this. And worse, if you, if you really want to reduce this to economics, I say fine. So I just want somebody to pay the, co- the complete comprehensive costs of our fossil fuel energy, quote-unquote, policy. As soon as those costs are internalized as opposed to passed down to our grandchildren, trust me, renewable energy will be the deal of the century. So to
0: include the military costs of having the Navy sure. keep the Suez Canal and the Straits of Hormuz open. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's expensive.
2: Precisely. <laughs> exactly. And then you get into the cost of a human life. In other words, we have people, we have young men and women dying uh, to, uh, to maintain our access to oil. So, you know, I wrote a blog post the other day talking about my son who happens to be 20 years old, fortunately not in the military, but he could be. And, you know, when I think about the concept of risking the life of my son, I go, if you want to talk about an externality, I put a pretty high price on that one. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? In other words, we really are – what we're doing on this thing is unbelievably callous.
0: Well, and here's the thing. You know, we talk about – there are a lot of people who are strict – constitutionalists and i'm okay with that Um, but securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity is right in the preamble of the constitution and how free are we when we have to spend 700 billion dollars for oil to other countries every year that doesn't feel free to me and on that note we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we come back much more go green radio so don't go away folks we'll be right back after this quick commercial with more go green radio Welcome back to Go Green Radio. In case you're just tuning in, our guest today is Craig Shields. He's the author of a new book called Renewable Energy... Following the money. And you know, Craig, initially, when I just heard the title of your book before I read it, um, I was considering the impact that, um, that conventional energy companies have on federal legislation through campaign finance. That's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about following the money. However, um, as you alluded to earlier in the show, there are financial institutions that are also playing a critical role. They're making decisions about how they invest in renewable energy projects and and also they 're setting the cost of capital for companies who are taking out loans and what have you to do these kinds of renewable energy projects. What are you seeing in this world of of green energy financing renewable energy financing? Um, what's happening out there are, are are banks and and investing organizations looking at the environmental and social liabilities inherent in the use of oil gas and coal and giving any preferential treatment to renewable energy or do you think that might happen
2: well it's such an interesting question um i i certainly am heartened by the fact that you know when i used to go to conferences a few even a few years ago and you'd see You know, a few minor venture capitalists, uh, with a couple of million dollars. Um, now you, you're talking about, as I I guess that I said in the last segment, um, you're talking about the largest financial institutions on the planet. You've got, you know, Citigroup and Deutsche Bank and so forth investing literally trillions of dollars in this. Um, and you see private equity jumping in. With fairly large projects. I mean, what they normally do is they say, okay, I have a round of four or five billion dollars, and I want a series of investments within it that are at least counted in the hundreds of millions of dollars, otherwise it's not worth doing the due diligence. But you see an awful lot of that all around the globe. Um, and principally outside of the United States. So, uh, South America, Europe, Asia, you know, there are enormous projects going on in terms of wind, in terms of biomass, and so forth. Um, hydro. Um, And each one has its own interesting stories to tell. A lot of it has to do with, well, how do you deal with fairly aggressive um, bureaucratic regulation that may be just now starting to break down? So in other words, instead of doing a, a 500 megawatt project, we're going to do 51 megawatt projects because anything a megawatt or under is unregulated. And we don't mm. want to be spending the enormous amount of money on lawyers and waiting years and years to get this, make this happen. So you see, you see this changing, you see this improving. Um, in fact, one of the real reasons that Germany is doing such a magnificent job in solar is the fact that they they don't have lawyers associated with this because they don't have they have streamlined the process. So if you want to do something major, utility scale solar in the United States, you need a phalanx of lawyers and you need to spend an enormous amount of money and every document they create is one off and they want mm-hmm. it that way because they're billing, you know, 400 dollars an hour to create these documents. Um in Germany that's simply not the case. They know exactly what they're doing. The permitting process for for solar in Germany takes a couple of hours, not a couple of years. Wow. Um, yeah. So You know, it it varies on a country-to-country basis, and I do believe, as I said in the last segment, that we will – that people – and largely, you know, I don't want to overly flatter you, but I think it's through people like you and this magnificent radio program that (laughs) – nor, enormous numbers of people are starting to get the message that A, this is happening, and B, it's happening for an extremely important reason, in other words, the survival of humankind. So mm-hmm. there are people who um, are getting the message, young people, uh, there's an interview in, I guess, my last book about demographics and, and kind of social issues where the guy says, you know, I don't want to be callous, but there is a, a, a there are old people who grew up Thinking that fossil fuels were the thing to do, and believe everything that they hear about the, that they hear from the oil companies—that you know we have abundant, um, you know, cheap, uh, clean energy in the ground. We need to use it. There are people who will never change their minds on that, but they tend to be old, and guess what—they tend to die. <laughs> I, I mean, there is no kind of uh, kind of nice way of putting that. And he goes, they, these are they're being replaced by young people who really get it, and they have a social conscience, and they consider themselves citizens of the earth, and they, they in turn get this from the good work of you know the Jill Bucks of the world. I really, my hat's off to you.
0: Well, thanks, Craig. I really do appreciate that. And and my hope is that there are um, a lot of young people. You know, we do work with a lot of young people through the Go Green initiative that they're, you know, sometimes I get emails from from students who are doing a paper or a project on a certain topic and they will look up, you know, the the requisite Go Green radio episode that goes along with that and listen to our interviews with with subject matter experts um, to get some great information. You know, one of the things i 'm concerned about, and we 've alluded to this a bit is the the energy infrastructure that 's going to be necessary to really get the most out of renewable energy technologies and you know unless I you know there 's some money that 's going to fall out of the sky there 's going to have to be some government investment in that in the same way that we invested money in our highway system yeah. uh, in our railroad systems, and what have you and yet um, you know, by most people's accounts, it's liberal Americans who are the biggest champions of renewable energy, but they're also the biggest champions of social spending. Um, and so I'm worried that we may not be able to shift any of our budget from social spending, which is where a lot of our funding goes. I know that in the state of California, you know, we used to spend, and this was bipartisan, you know, Governor Reagan and Governor Pat Brown, they were spending 10 to 11 percent of California's general fund on infrastructure way back then. Now we're, we've taken a lot of that funding and shifted it to social spending, which I'm not saying is wrong, but we spend about one percent of our general fund on infrastructure. And that's happening state by state. That's happening on the federal level. And I'm just worried that we won't be able to get enough of the same people who champion both social spending and renewable energy projects to shift some of that funding to energy infrastructure upgrades to make us you know, more 21st century and modern in the way that we deliver energy. And I'm not sure what you think about that, Craig. Where do you think we're at on that issue?
2: Well, I think that we commonly debate, we, we commonly debate economic strength versus uh, doing the right thing in uh, energy. And I think that it's a red herring. I, I just simply, uh, based on the interviews that I've conducted with economists, I believe that we need to do what people are doing around the world, and that is understanding that uh, that clean energy is the defining industry in the 21st century. I remember Ray Lane, the uh, managing partner of Kleiner Perkins, the most you know preeminent, Um, VC firm, Um, talked to an audience at the end of the, I'm going to say, the 2011 um, auto show in Detroit, where for three days, people had been coming on stage saying, we are, you know, we have fixed ourselves, we are investing in our future. And he goes, this is wrong. you, You people are not really telling the truth. Um, we did a fantastic job in the late 20th century, we, the United States, Mm -hmm. um, in leading what was at the time the most important, the, the defining industry of the time, and that is communications and networking and the internet and, you know, IT and so forth. Um, but we're, we're sitting around, um... We're we're, we're sitting around arguing with one another and bickering and doing essentially nothing while the rest of the world leads the way in the defining industry of the 21st century, which is energy. So, Mm -hmm. in other words, we we have to be – if we're going to fix this problem, we first need to tell the truth to one another that we really are failing at this and we need to change this. Um, And he and a great number of others I've interviewed believe that the – um, the job creation associated with clean energy, if we really do embrace this thing, we are going to resume our position as an economic leader on this planet. And I do think that, you know, it's only a, at the current rate, it's only a matter of a couple of years until China overtakes us as the number one economy on this planet. And I don't think Americans are going to like that. I think I'm reminded of, um, George C. Scott as General Patton.
1: <laughs> uh, this is
2: uh, before you were born. Uh, I've seen but- it. I so, okay, it. good. Where <laughs> he goes, he goes. America loves a winner and will not tolerate a loser. And I think that that's precisely what's going, we're right around the corner from. In other words, the common American is going to say, w- "How have we failed so miserably?" I agree um, with you, and Greg. I don't think we're going to sit around forever and just um, you know wait to, to the point at which the United States is a, a kind of irrelevant in the world.
0: Well, so. and I agree, and I think that what's exciting is that um, there are those of us you know, and it's not just liberals i mean it's it's people who are right of center, even like myself, who say, you know what? I want to live in a modern society. I want to use the best science and the best technology to live in a modern, sustainable, in other words, not just greenwashing, but we can keep doing this kind of society. And I think that that we're just about to get there, and I hope that uh, the election cycle of the future will, uh, will prove me right. But thanks so much for joining us, Craig. Congratulations on your new book. Thanks so much for joining us. And to our listeners, we'll be here same time same place next week with more go green radio until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green